0: As Harrison has just said, the reading is from Luke chapter 15. Um, it's the story of the lost son, parable of the lost son. So Luke 15, verse 11. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and travelled to a distant country, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here am I, dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father but while the son was still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion he ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him the son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and in your sight i am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father told his servant quick bring out the best robe and put on him put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because he, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found so they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came near to the house he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning that what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been saving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me, me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends.' But when the son of yours who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. As Harrison said, good day. Whenever you're watching online, this gets played during the day. So not good morning if you're watching in the evening. I hope you had a good morning. Um, It's good to hear about some of the the, the jobs that you had. I think my worst one was installing underfloor insulation, but I'm sure I've told that story here before. Still bad memories. Speaking of unpaid labor, uh, I do want to thank the, the, those of you who are in the team who um, are mowing our lawns around here, uh, looking great. We've got this new system where people are responsible for a particular zone. Um, you guys may notice there's one zone that hasn't been claimed yet as you drive in. Has anyone noticed? Yeah, you notice our, our, our nature strip. Um, we're looking for someone to t- head up that team, um, but even less than that, if you just want to give it a go... I'd be so grateful if it looked really nice for Easter. If anyone really wants to just give it a, give it a quick mow, um, that would be amazing. How's that for a sneaky plug as I start the sermon? Um, all right. Uh, there's a kind of a... We're going to start thinking, as we think today, about um, a paradox. You know the idea of a paradox? kind of Something that kind of makes sense even though it shouldn't make sense. And it's kind of a paradox uh, in life where... Uh, sometimes the harder you try something, the more you think about doing something, the harder it is to do. Have you had that experience? Concentrating something harder, you, you, know, you should be able to do it better, but that's not often the case. It's a bit of a paradox. For example, I've been uh, playing a bit of squash with some of the guys from church, with Harrison and some others, and it's amazing when you're warming up, you can pull off these amazing shots, these great shots. If you're warming up, doesn't matter, you're just like, wow, that was an amazing shot. But once, you know... It's that one point you need to win the game. You overthink it, you double fault, and it's all over. Um, it, you know, it, When you re- really you know, are thinking, thinking hard about it, things can be very hard to actually pull off. Life is full of those moments in sports. I've had that playing uh, music, maybe public speaking. Maybe for you, you've worked really, really hard at caring for your goldfish or your houseplants, and then they dive over water and overfeeding and overcare. Over you try and make everyone happy when you're making a change at work and end up putting everyone offside. You, you, you want to hold on to your kids really tight and the more you hold on, the more they push away. Life is full of these kind of paradoxes. I had a friend who really struggled to learn how to drive. He really struggled because what he was focused on, he was so focused on getting like the steering wheel angle right, for the turns, it's like, I need to turn this much to be able to turn that kind of turn. Now, if you drive a car, you know that's not how it works, right? <laughs> you can look ahead and just go with, go with, with the flow, you know? Uh, you know? When you're driving for a long time, you don't need to think an awful lot about the, the, the basics, right? Steering, indicating, braking, changing gears if you drive manual. Uh, you can do those things without thinking about it, and the process becomes second nature. So you can concentrate on what's important on enjoying the journey, on looking out for, for dangers around you, for seeing whether the kids are murdering each other in the back seat or not. You can hopefully enjoy the journey, hopefully, um, without stressing about the fundamentals, the angle of the wheel, the pressure on the brake. But that doesn't happen overnight, does it? You know, there are disciplines, there are decisions that you've got you to make to get to that point. You've got to learn, you've got to practice, have your lessons. Um, there's commitments you need to make to be that kind of driver. Same with squash. The best squash players have made those disciplines and those decisions and that training. They have a commitment to their game, so it becomes second nature, a commitment that I'll never have. But with the fundamentals in place, whether you're driving a car or playing squash or playing instrument, with those fundamentals in place, you are just free to enjoy what you're doing as it becomes more and more natural. Now, we've been talking for some weeks about discipleship. We've been talking about walking with Jesus to become like Jesus, and there's moments we've felt that wouldn't it just be nice just to naturally live like Jesus, if that was to come naturally? Now, I have to press pause here. I read a book last night, just literally last night. It's all written, and the book says, Stop telling people to become like Jesus. <laughs> that goes my sermon series. <laughs> but, but the point is, and it makes, it makes a good point, I mean, who do you know that's actually like Jesus? Like, who's made it? no one's made it and in in a way it's an unattainable goal yeah so when I say be like Jesus I hope that's not a big weight going I'll never be like Jesus you won't this side of glory I think the key thing I want to emphasise is the walk with Jesus bit and Jesus does his work in you to grow you more like Jesus I want to clarify that because that book really challenged me last night stop doing what you've been doing Uh, our job is to do the walk with Jesus to make these commitments God's job by his spirit to transform us just wanted to Put that out there, but it would be so nice, wouldn't it, to to just not to think about it and just live this transformed life. And there's been moments in this series where it's felt kind of heavy. There's been the you know the call to obedience and uh, the call to service. Our ministry and service has joy, but it also is hard yakka at sometimes. We've asked each other some challenging questions over the last few weeks. Have you changed in the last 12 months? Are you committed to transformation? Will you obey Jesus before all other things? Uh, will you serve rather than being served? Will you commit to a ministry mindset? Now, these are important commitments, aren't they, as Christians? They're important as disciples. But there's a danger in them too. In a way, I think these things are a bit like the fundamentals of, of driving, or steering and braking, indicating, because focusing on them, on these, on these elements, on these commitments, as if they are the goal in themselves that can really suck the joy out of Christian life. On, 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 on the other hand, a life of transformation and obedience and service is meant to bring joy and peace. Living in that is the good life. Do you kind of see the tension? Do you see the, the paradox in this? Now, the answer can't be just forget about transformation, obedience and service. Don't forget about you know, the fundamentals of driving the car. But they can't be the point of the Christian life. In fact, we're going to see in the Bible... There is a way of living in these commitments to discipleship that's just miserable and toxic. We see that in the older son. That's not what we want either. You can kind of see the tension. I hope you can feel the tension that we live in in this moment. Now, the bad news is I'm not going to make this tension go away anytime too soon. The title of today's talk is what? It's Dying to Live. Oh, great. Here we go. It's a call to gospel sacrifice. And a couple of weeks ago, Matt kind of talked about he read the verse where Jesus calls his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. That's a call to death. It's a call to sacrifice. But of course, the commitment doesn't end with death and dying. It's dying to live, dying that death, dying that life may come. Life on the far side of death, and I don't just mean in heaven. Remember Luke uh, chapter 9, again, verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it mean? What does it mean to lose your life because of Jesus? What is the cost that leads to this life? What is the cost that leads to this life? Now, we've had it read. We're going to walk through this story again that Jesus told his disciples and and told those around him. It's a very well-known story. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. But in it, we're going to see that this death we're called to is death to ourselves. The death we're called to is death to ourselves. The cost we are going to be called to is the cost of giving up control, of calling the shots. The cost we're called to, the death we're called to is the death of ourselves as ruler and controller and manager of our lives. And the true life is lived with Jesus as king. So we're going to look through this pretty well-worn parable. You may have uh, read it hundreds of times yourself, heard about it lots of times. But I want you to notice with fresh eyes a particular angle. I want you to, to think about, as we go through, who is in control, who is grasping for control, and who's living life to the full. All right, so Jesus tells three stories to those who are standing around him. And Luke, at the beginning of the chapter, points out that those standing around are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes. They're the controllers, the rulers, the strict lawmakers, the strict law keepers. And these guys are really struggling with Jesus. They're struggling with Jesus because he's hanging out with people they see as dirty sinners. Jesus, what are you doing hanging around with these people? So Jesus tells them these stories. He tells them the story of the joy when a woman finds her lost coin, when the farmer finds his lost sheep, and he climaxes with this third story, that of the lost son. And, uh, and he's making a point to them, which we'll see. And these stories that make a point, in this parable, there is a father with two sons, The father owns the property, he is in control. He's in control, he cares for and provides for his sons. Until one day, the youngest son delivers a withering insult to the father. In verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate I have coming to me. Dad, I want to have control of the stuff that belongs to you that will one day be mine, but I can't wait till you die I want it now. And so for some reason, instead of flicking across the head and saying, pull your head in, the father agrees to him, agrees to this. He distributes the assets to them. The youngest son gathers all that is now his. He leaves the family home. He leaves the country. and He wastes the money in what Jesus kind of mildly calls foolish living. And you can kind of hear the chuckles of the Pharisees listening to this story. What a disrespectful jerk this kid is. Taking his father's money, wasting it like that. He's going to cop it big time. What an absolute disgrace. The disgrace, of course, gets worse for the younger son. A famine hits the land he's gone to. Perhaps, you know, God's judgment on a wicked place. They deserve it. But there's no spare food. And there's no spare food. No one's going to help this idiot. He's got to get a job. But no one's hiring in a financial crisis. There's no job maker. Job keeper, job seeker payments in those days. Nicer days, Sally, aren't they? Those days. When... He finally finds a job, feeding pigs. but He's obviously not, not getting paid very much because the food he's feeding the pigs starts to look pretty appetizing to him. He's fighting to keep some sort of control in his life, but it's not going well. The, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes listen to the story. They're not... They're not chuckling anymore. This is just bad taste. Feeding unclean pigs, it's like a Jew's worst nightmare. It's unthinkable. Wanting to eat with them and their food, it's disgusting. This guy's hit rock bottom and then gone deeper. His experiment of control in his life has not gone well at all. What was he thinking? But somehow at this lowest of the lows, his brain re-engages. Luke 15, uh, verse 17 When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. I'm as good as dead. I'm as good as dead. He said, I have sinned. I'm not worth what I once was. I had my chance as a son. I took control and I've lost absolutely everything. Perhaps my father will take me back as a servant. I can give up control. Tell me what to do. I'll be like one of the hired workers and perhaps I'll get to live. Perhaps I can live. So he got up, verse 20, and went to his father. Now, if you're a father in this room, maybe you have a teenager, and adult kid, what would you do when this kid comes back? You'd be warming up a pretty good lecture for him, wouldn't you? It'd be fair enough, he deserves that at the very least. But while the son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with disappointment. No? Rage. Righteous fury. No, compassion. He was filled with compassion. He ran, ran down the road, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son gets his words out. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his kind of pre-prepared speech gets cut off. Dad's not really listening. Verse 22, the father told his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Quick, clean this kid up. He smells like pigs. That wasn't in the original text, I just added that in, but you can imagine. Then bring the fattened calf, slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. No one can believe there is. Not, not the son in the story. Uh, not the Pharisees listening to Jesus. Because Jesus, Jesus is making a point here, isn't he? Because in his story, who's the father? Well, the father's the God figure in the story. It's quite clear. He, he's the owner of all, the provider of all things, the, the, the giver of good things. And and who's the son? The son is those rebels who have run from God. They've run from God, but they've seen that, it, 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 that, that actually their experiment in living their own way their experiment of self-rule, of holding on to control, this hasn't worked. So it's those who've come back to God. For many, many of us, it actually takes hitting rock bottom to realize that we have no control over this life. For many, it takes this point of dead lostness to help us realize that we aren't the givers and controllers of life. It takes this moment for many to show we need to die to ourselves Died our own kingship to recognize that life only comes through Jesus. Sometimes that's the only thing that will prise our hands off the controls of our life. And this story, right? It's a beautiful expression of God's love. God's love for people like us who've held on to control and pushed God away. Jesus, in this telling this story, is showing those people there, showing us now God's heart for these kind of people, for his people. He's an extravagant father who doesn't mind making a fool of himself as he heads off down the road to embrace his son, to greet his foolish son, driven not by duty but by love and by compassion. Jesus said, this is God. This is the God who welcomes sinners. Jesus says, this is what I'm doing right now, he says. I'm welcoming those who realize that they've reached rock bottom and the only way to go is back home. The only way to go is back home. It's a beautiful thing for them to hear. I think it's a beautiful thing for us to hear too. What an amazing, compassionate, loving God who welcomes people who've just gone so far from Him. But you see, see the crowd listening to him though at the time—they're not the the tax collectors and sinners standing around, are they? They're not the bunch of rebel younger sons. That's not who he's really teaching in this. In this bit it's the Pharisees it's the scribes and so Jesus can't leave the story just there because if you leave it there what does it what does it mean it means that you dirty sinners have to come back and be like us the Pharisees take your place with the good people clean yourselves up but Jesus isn't finished with the story of course Luke chapter 15 verse 25 now the older son was in the field as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Great, my brother's back. I was so worried for him. It's good to have him home. Well, no, his reaction's the same as the Pharisees, same reaction as they see Jesus hanging out with the, with the sinners. Verse 28, he became angry and did not want to go in. He became angry, did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. He pleaded with him, come join the party. Come celebrate. This is a good thing. Now, this father's right. He's still the father. He could order him back into the party, threaten him, you will hug your brother, you will make up, or else. But no, no. He pleads with his son. He wants this son's heart as well, not just his obedience. But verse 29. But he replied to his father, look, whenever a sentence starts with look, it's not, not going to go well. Look, I've been slaving many years for you, but I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. It's not fair. It's not fair on me. He's had his chance. You gave him uh, his share. Anything you spend now comes from my share. I've been a slave. I deserve this. He doesn't. Son, the father said to him, you are always with me. Everything I have is, is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. My son, where is your heart? You forget. You forget that you are my son and not my slave. And this son of mine, as you call him, is a brother of yours too. He was dead and is now alive. Isn't that a good thing? He was lost and is found. Won't you be happy with us? The story ends. Decision hangs, we don't get resolution. What will the oldest son do? The question hangs there for the Pharisees. What will they do? Will they be glad that sinners are being brought back into the family of God? Or will they stay outside in a rage? The story hangs for them, hangs for us as well. What do we do? How do we respond? I mentioned before I want to look at this story from the angle of Control. The younger son wants control, takes control, realizes he never had it anyway, returns and submits himself to the father and enjoys the blessings of the household. The older son, too, wants control. I work and so I deserve this. I've been slaving and serving, I've never disobeyed. I serve, I obey. I deserve. Service, obedience. Hang on. That's discipleship language. In fact, it's exactly the discipleship language we've been using in the last couple of weeks, isn't it? As disciples, we're committed to serve. As disciples, we're committed to obey. But for the older son, these things have become toxic for him and miserable. Service and obedience are no good, it appears, if we forget that we are sons of God. Service and obedience are no good if we forget that we are sons of God, sons and daughters of God. If we serve and obey while holding on to control, then we do it for our own sakes. We end up miserable like the oldest son. We end up judgmental and cold. I mean, this is such a powerful, poignant story with with so many layers to it. You see, the, the younger son still tries to control his destiny to the very end. I will go and ask if I can be a slave. But he can't even control that. (laughs) His father says, no, no, you're my son. You have all the benefits that come with being my son. You are not my slave, you are my son. The older son forgets that he's a son with all the benefits that come with that. And he thinks, again, I must be a slave to maintain control, to get what I deserve. He's staring at the steering wheel, he's looking at the, the, the brakes, he's not thinking about the big picture, the journey. He doesn't see the joy of being a son of God, provided for by his Father. That's the Pharisees, and that's, to be honest, us too, very, very easily. I said right at the start of this series, um, some weeks ago now, that I was nervous about coming to these commitments of, of discipleship. I was nervous about us either being crushed by the weight of, of, of these commitments and, 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 and bitching it, leaving it, running away. Or on the other hand, thinking that we can do it fine under our own steam. See, I was worried about the response of both brothers for us in our hearts. Run away or lose, lose focus on the point. To maintain control, do it ourselves in our own strength. But what we're called to is to give up control, to die to ourselves so that we can live. Being called to die to ourselves so that we can live in freedom of being sons and daughters of God. That's where joy and peace are found. That's contentment. That's where that is. Life trusting in God's good plan for us, whether we understand it or not. But giving up kingship of our own hearts and our lives is not easy, is it? It's very hard. It's so very hard for us. We hold on to control at all costs. I read this in actually the same book, but earlier on. Uh, and this really struck a chord with me. This, um, this is quite I'll read to you. It struck a chord because this is, this is who we are. And this is why it's so hard for us to get up control. It um, should be on the screen, I think. Thanks. It says... Uh, this is a book by Mark Sayers called Reappearing Church, and in it he says, the average Westerner, so you know, most of us, average Westerner is a radical individualist who is deeply afraid of compromising their autonomy, very afraid of giving up their own control. Uh, we are shaped by the passive-aggressive tone of consumerism uh, where we want maximum say with minimum responsibility. We're shaped primarily by our fluid and ever-shifting feelings. We yearn for community and connection, yet we fear commitment and consistency. We wish for justice while desiring the hedonistic payoffs. We religiously point the finger at others while jealously guarding our own right to do as we please. All these factors put us in a spiritually precarious place. This is, just, this is not necessarily us in this room, this is just our culture, right? And we feel it to different degrees in ourselves. Our autonomy, our self-rule, is the thing we want to hold on to most. And that's what we're called to let go of. It's a big call, isn't it? It's hard for us. But I think that's the key cost of discipleship. It's what it means to walk with Jesus, to, 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 to give up control to Him. And it's the paradox of, of discipleship, dying to ourselves so that we actually might have life now and into the future. But who has the right to ask you to do that? How dare you ask me to give up control of myself? Who asks you to die to yourself that you might live? Who asks that? Well, it's another son that asks that. Another son asks that of you. Another son who also left the comfort of his father's house and journeyed to a distant land. This one left his position of power and and, and glory and comfort, not to waste money on himself, not to feed his appetites for pleasure, not to rebel against his provider, but to walk among those who did. To walk with the rebels and with the runaways. The lowest, the rejected, the most broken, those like you and me. And this son, too, found himself disgraced Cursed even, not, not unclean from hanging out with the muck of, of pigs. Not getting what he deserved from his foolishness. No, this son was disgraced and he ended up cursed and hanging from a cross. Gave not what he deserved, but getting what his people deserved for their foolishness. Dying so that we could live. This son whose hands and voice controlled the wind and the waves, controlled sickness, controlled demons, controlled even death, those hands gave up control, were pierced by nails. That voice cried out and then became as silent as the tomb, giving up control. Why? So that we who grasp at control, so that we who grasp at this control can finally see that it's not up to us, so we can see that we make rubbish kings and queens of our own lives. And this son who died is now alive. The son who died is now alive so that we who are lost can be found. What does the resurrection show us? Jesus shows us in his resurrection from the dead that he is the rightful king, the one who has control over the uncontrollable things in this world. The royal son dying to live so that we can live as sons and daughters of God. Jesus tells this story, he shows that the broken can be made whole, that they can be sons and not slaves. Sons and daughters, not slaves. And he pleads. He pleads with the self-righteous to join the party as sons and not slaves. He pleads with them, he pleads with us. So yeah, if anyone was to ask you to give up control, to die to yourself, it would make no sense unless it's this one who asks you, this son. With what he's done, with, with who he shows himself to be. I mean, every other king of our life pales. Any, any, anything else we could put our trust and hope in, it, it, it's shown up to be hollow. Only Jesus can truly and rightfully call you to die to yourself, only he can give life. So, what do we need to do? Well, beneath our obedience and our service and our commitment to transformation, which are, which are good things, but beneath all that, we need to just declare that we're bankrupt, really, don't we? Because without Jesus, we've got nothing. Without Jesus, we've got no control. I've said the cost of discipleship is giving up control, but in, in a way, it's kind of, it's not so much giving up control as realising we don't actually have it in the first place. We don't have it in the first place. Think about the two sons in the story and how they grasp control in different ways. Chances are we're a mix of both at different times. If you're like me, sometimes we're prone to running, sometimes we're prone to self-righteousness and and, and controlling. Maybe one is more dominant for you, maybe you can identify that for yourself. How is it you try and hang on to control of your life? By running from God or by focusing on what you can do for God so that He owes you one? I struck as we watched the video before from the, the world of, of Portugal how much that was that that's what they're being taught and living in. This is what you have to do so that you will get, so that God owes you. Instead, we have to realize that we owe him everything. I think we often see the danger of the younger sons. We kind of look at the world out there and go, oh it's going to pieces, and look at those terrible people running away from God and doing terrible things. But but I think for us, we're often in churches more in danger of being the older son. Older sons feel quite comfortable in churches. But we have to be careful. Older sons make churches judgmental, unloving, and unwelcoming places. We we in among ourselves must fight the pride that says we've got this on our own. We are good enough. And others need to lift their game to be with us. No, no. We're bankrupt. We bring nothing. But through Jesus we have everything. We live in that freedom as sons of God. Jesus made us sons of God. We have all his blessings. We grasp the control, but it's ridiculous. It's like a toddler in the cockpit of a 747 saying, I want to fly. <laughs> Give me go. But if we see Jesus right, if we see Jesus as king, it's a no brainer. Just like the disciples when Jesus first called them, who left everything and followed, it makes sense. If Jesus is who he says he is, that's key, isn't it? If he is who he says he is and did what he said he did, if we see him like that, then we will choose to die to ourselves so we might live as sons and daughters of God. We might choose to walk with him as by his grace he he makes us and, and transforms us to live as his sons and daughters. My prayer is that we will see Jesus, clearly this Jesus. My prayer is that we will see this extravagant love for us that we will know the heart of God and that will shape our hearts properly. I think that's the goal of discipleship. That's the goal of transformation that we, that we want for, for ourselves and for, for each other. It's our hearts being ordered right to see God correctly, to see Jesus correctly. We love the wrong things. We want to we grow so that we love the small things in our life a small amount. You know, Netflix is good, for sort of. You know, love it a bit. We love the medium things a medium, medium amount We love the big things in our life a lot. We love our families. They're so important. We love them heaps. But we love Jesus overall. Why? Because Jesus loves us infinitely. He loved us to his death and beyond giving us life. I'm praying that your hearts and my hearts will love like that because of how we've been loved. How about I pray for us? Father, we thank you that Jesus came and died and walked with people like us, with the, those who are obviously sinners, with those who are obviously self-righteous. And we thank you that your heart was for, for both of them, that you call both sons to come back to you. Father, I pray that you'd show us our hearts and how, they are, um, how we love the wrong things, the wrong amount, Please reshape our hearts, melt our hearts and reform them that we might see Jesus and his love, his infinite love for us. We might love him above all, that we would give him control. This is a slow process. Father, help us to walk with Jesus through our lives. It's not going to happen all at once. But please show us even even one thing this week where we can see I'm holding on to control here. I need to give it to Jesus. So please chip away. Let our hearts of stone melt them and form them into hearts of flesh that love you properly because of how much we've been loved. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.